0: Good morning, Cross Point. Let's pray together. Jesus, we've been singing about you and we've been singing to you because you're not an idea. You're not a long dead hero. You are alive, the very eternal son of God, who is life, who has always lived. And yet, Lord, taking on a human nature, lived in our place. Died in our place, rose from the dead to give us someday perfect eternal life, which begins now and is fulfilled sometime perfectly, the time that you choose. And I get to tell people who you are, and I get to enjoy you myself as I do, and only you, Lord, can meet with us and do all of that. So bless us, and I pray that you would meet with us, that you we would, when we leave, we would know that we have worshipped learn from, become more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have a big announcement. Some of you already know what it is. Do you already know what it is? Some of you do because you have subscribed to the weekly church email. If you have not, if you did not receive an email that I sent yesterday morning, the first ever Saturday morning email... I was just so excited to tell you, please subscribe to the church email, okay? It's the best way that I know to communicate with all of us at once, and the trouble is sometimes I narrowly avoid telling people to subscribe to the email in the email itself. It'll come to you. That would never work if I remind you in the email to subscribe to the email. Are you with me, folks? Just a bad joke, isn't it? sermon will be better. I, I hope. It has to be. It's about Jesus. The news is this. Virtually every pandemic restriction ends in the state of California on June 15th. That means that on Sunday, June 20th, we're back in there. And we'll do, for those of you who remain cautious, we'll do all that we can. We'll keep the doors open. We'll give you extra ventilation. We'll give you extra space. You can wear a mask or not wear a mask. No mask shaming here at Crosspoint. I don't know if it's ever happened. It never should. You come. You be comfy. We're family. Families shouldn't shame one another. Families should support and love and encourage each other. The only reason we've been outside and we've been outside since July is we have been doing our best before God to honor the authorities that God has established. According to Romans 13, those same authorities are saying you can go back inside. So as soon as we possibly can, we're going back inside. If you have any questions, you have any needs, you have any concerns along the way, please let me know. But I want you to get ready for the idea that you will no longer see me soaked, (laughs) windblown, sunburned. I may fall off that stage, but I will no longer fall off of this one, okay? Let's open our Bibles, please. And we are going to go on a very fast trip through the New Testament. In fact, this is a sermon in two parts. It's all about Jesus and I discovered in the first service I don't literally have time to explain things the way I think they should be explained and tell you all that I had planned for this morning. So next week we're going to go deeper and tell you more specifically and more practically why what you're about to hear about Jesus matters so very much. We're talking about Jesus and we're doing it from across the Bible rather than is our custom in a single passage of the Bible because we are in a series of doctrine and do not ever let the word doctrine or theology scare you. The very word doctrine or theology intimidates some people, annoys some people, puts others to sleep. All the word doctrine means is teaching. And the reason we can't discover everything that the Bible has to tell us about Jesus or any other topic in a single passage of Scripture is because the Bible's a big book. God unfolded his revelation. He made himself increasingly and more fully clear as he advanced, as we move in our Bibles from left to right, the things that God has always known and the things that God chose to tell us about reality become more and more clear. So you can learn a great deal about Jesus from a paragraph or a chapter or a book of the Bible, but everything that the Bible tells you about the Son of God, about Jesus, is not found in any single book of the Bible. For that, you need the whole Bible. All scripture is inspired by God. It's all given. It's all breathed out by God. So to understand everything God has said and everything God knows is true about anything God has talked about, you have to assess the whole Bible. And the only way to do that is to study doctrine. Doctrine or theology is just God's truth arranged by topic. You can think of it as a filing cabinet where you would open up the filing cabinet called God or called Jesus or called mankind or called sin or called heaven or hell. And if the Bible talks about those topics, that file folder, if you go through the whole Bible, will tell you in concise form what the Bible says about that single subject. Is that making sense so far? So today we're talking about Jesus. And today I need to explain to you two common misconceptions, mistakes. Sometimes those are not mere ignorant mistakes. They are willful lies about Jesus. Those lies about Jesus have been told literally from the moment Jesus started teaching. Jesus was so polemical, so controversial, so clear, so incisive... So provocative as I'm going to show you that often when Jesus finished making himself clear, men immediately picked up rocks to murder him. His claims about himself, about reality, about his purpose, were absolutely crystal clear, painstakingly clear. And in spite of the clarity of Jesus... In spite of the clarity of those who knew him, who lived within his lifetime and who knew him and who God used to tell us more about his son, in spite of their clarity, two lies, two mistakes, two errors are always cropping up around Jesus. The first lie or mistake is this, and it's the most common by far. The first mistake regarding Jesus is that Jesus is not God. That Jesus is a good teacher, Jesus is, a, in the scholarship of some, a wisecracking, too smart for his own good, Jewish provocateur and revolutionary who got too close to power and got himself killed for his trouble. He's been called a sage, a poet, a mystic. I saw once at Barnes & Noble a little book called Jesus as CEO, and I tried to imagine Jesus in a contemporary boardroom. Whatever Jesus decided to do, he would be perfect at it. But Jesus has always been recast in the understanding that people can bear. And the first and the most provocative claim about Jesus from those who knew him, and as I'm going to show you from Jesus himself, is that Jesus is not an ordinary, mere human being. That he is a human being. No doubt about that. But that he is not, certainly, God. And we're going to move left to right in our Bibles to understand what the Bible tells us about God. We're studying it because it's practical. It's controversial to this day. The Pharisees of Jesus' time, the present-day Jehovah Witnesses, everyone in the Muslim faith in their own way, everyone in the Mormon religion, all deny, minimize, explain away, or simply contradict the deity of Jesus. All of those religious movements that I've mentioned do it in different ways, but they all do it. They reduce Jesus to mere exclusive humanity, and they deny his deity. He might be a very important human. He might be a very wise human. He might be a powerful, even miracle-working, prophetic human, but he certainly is not, cannot be God. And moving left to right across your Bible, you're going to see that the Bible does not leave room for that interpretation. Here is how John opens his gospel. John was the closest of Jesus' 12 disciples, the original apostles. He is the one closest literally and emotionally, physically to Jesus. He was closest to him at the Last Supper of the 12. It may be that John knew him best. And here's how John begins telling you the story of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what's it say? Was God simple categorical first sentence of John's gospel in the English Bible. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and here the controversial claim. The word, whatever John means by that, the word was God. I don't have time to go into it, but the, John is choosing the, to use the word word for very specific reasons that were very tied into the culture of his day. A simple way to think about it is that we use words to express ourselves. We use words to make ourselves known. The reason I'm speaking to you and using so many words is I want to be understood. I want you to understand something about Jesus. And the reason I'm doing it in English, y no lo estoy haciendo en español es porque quiero que todos me entiendan. (laughs) Everybody get that? Some of you got that. Because some of you speak Spanish. What I said was, I'm using a lot of words, and I'm doing in English, and then I continued to say, rather than in Spanish, because I want all of you to understand me. See, when I switched over to different kinds of words, I lost about probably 90% of the audience to drag you back, some of you screaming, into high school Spanish, and you regretted in that moment that you had not applied to yourself. Because that would have been a cool moment for you if you could have understood in two languages at once. When God says... In his word, in the beginning, was the word. That's a claim to the eternality of whoever the word is. And it says that this word was with God, and here, the word was God. Now, you know from reading the rest of the chapter, and I'm going to show you that who who the word is, is Jesus himself, because later is going to say, John is going to say, 13 verses later in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the person through whom God him made himself abundantly and perfectly clear, the word who was always there, the word who was always with him, the word who always was God, that word became flesh, that's Jesus. Paul says to one of the first Christian churches in the book of Colossians, see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I want to dwell here for a second because this is intensely practical. This is nearly 2,000 years old, but it's as timely as Twitter. This tells, here is Paul, himself once a skeptic who thought Jesus was a hoax and a fraud who met him undeniably in the strength of his deity and became not only a believer, but the most steadfast preacher and proclaimer and teller of the person of Jesus. Paul tells these people, look out. Make sure that nobody captures you and drags you away through human philosophy and through empty lies. There are people around you that are teaching mere human traditions. They think they are very clever, but they're actually only tapping into very fundamental, self-made, worldly ideas about the world. They're continually trying to take you captive and get you away from Christ. Why am I telling you that? Because there is a contemporary uproar and very understandable about the dangers of the internet. And boy, did we see it last night. Apparently, some people, through the power of TikTok, got themselves arrested by the Huntington Beach Police Department. There was a social media movement. Thousands of people showed up on the beach, apparently behaved badly enough that the police came out, took some of them away. I don't know. I think they drove them into Long Beach. I'm not sure exactly what happened. <laughs> I just happened to know this because I was at a wedding on the beach when all of this nonsense broke out. And people go, it's the Internet. It's the Internet. It's my... Kids, friends, it's my peers, it's my college professor, it's my next door neighbor. These are the problems in our society. You need to understand all of those influences, all of those friendships in the power of the world apart from the knowledge and the love of Jesus are always trying to get you away from him. The trouble is not the internet, it's not your friend group, it's not the schools, it's not the colleges, it is this fundamental spiritual fight that some people are continually in danger of being captured by lies, by mere human traditions, by things that appear clever but are actually quite foolish that have nothing to do with Christ. Let me read it to you again now in full context. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, watch this, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The reason you should not listen to people who are contrary to Jesus is that in Jesus, All that God is dwells in bodily form. That's a massive statement. That Jesus is a human being, but in him dwells completely all that God is. That when you're looking at Jesus, you're actually beholding God, as Jesus himself is going to tell us. And the privilege of being known and loved by Jesus is, according to Paul, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now we come to the book of Hebrews. One of the reasons this sermon takes a little bit longer is we're moving from left to right across the Bible, and I need to set the table to tell you what you're looking at when you look at all these different scriptures, because they're all written at specific times by specific people for a specific audience. When John wrote his gospel, he had real people in mind. When Paul wrote the letter to Colossians, he knew exactly who that congregation was through the witness of a friend of his. When the book of Hebrews was written, there's no doubt an audience is in mind. The name of the book itself tells you who it's intended for. You see, in the first century, as in the 21st century, actually going all in with Jesus and claiming loyalty and love to Christ is immediately going to be divisive. It was divisive in the first century. It's divisive now. The people who received and read the book of Hebrews for the first time were Jews in the first century, who had heard the witness about Jesus, they had looked through their Old Testament, they had come to believe that Jesus actually was the one that God had sent. When God speaks of his anointed, of his servant, of the one he's going to send, of the one who's going to redeem and save, they became convinced through evidence and through testimony about Jesus that Jesus was the one. But not all of them. Some of them were still investigating it. Some of them were still wondering about it. And all of them, even if they had believed in Christ or not, they were all under pressure. They were all continually being tempted to be dragged away, not into Greek philosophy, but back into the Judaism in which they'd been raised. They were being cast out of synagogues. They were losing family members. They were losing employment. They were being social outcasts in their small, tight-knit communities across the Roman Empire. It was a tough time to be a Christian, and many were considering going back, taking up the law and the tradition of Moses, and staying socially safe. And the book of Hebrews is a long sermon. I believe it's a sermon, the way it's written. It's a long sermon to make a single point. Jesus is better. He's just better. He's better than everything they claim he is or that everything they say he is not. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than our first high priest, Aaron. Jesus is superior in every way. And if you lose him, if you walk away from him, God is sending no one else. No one else is coming. He is the one. If you neglect him, if you ignore him and his salvation, that's it. There's no hope because he is the one. He is the final one and the only one. If you neglect him, you will be lost. So hang on to him because whatever you care to compare him to from the future or from your Jewish past, Jesus is simply superior. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. And just like the Gospel of John, the book of Hebrews starts with the fastball. In the very beginning of the book... The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is actually God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. They knew that. That's what was being read in the synagogue every Saturday. They were reading the prophets. They were reading the law. Our ancestors, he says, received those writings. But now, verse 2, God has done something very different. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the one John called the word, remember? The father's still speaking, this time not through prophets, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is no ordinary prophet. This Son of God owns everything, and through Him everything that exists was made. Verse 3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Love you to circle the word nature. That's important, and we'll come to that next week. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, Jesus, the Son of God, upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a massive statement. You know what Jesus is doing right now? Among other things, he's holding the world together. The reason you don't come apart is because Jesus made you and Jesus sustains you. He is the Son of God and he came among us. He lived among us. He spoke in our day us, not through a prophet, but by sending his son, and then he died on the cross. That's what's being referred to here. After making purification for sins, he did that by dying, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than than theirs. What I want you to see is the categorical statement from the author of Hebrews. Jesus was the final word of God. For many years, God used prophets to speak to the Jews, announcing the arrival of his son, but in these last days, the son has come. And that son, if I can paraphrase What I just read to you, that sun is the very radiance. He is the shining of the glory of God, and he is the exact imprint of God's nature. In simple terms, when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the very being and essence of God. Paul is going to say later in Colossians, this isn't in your notes, but Paul will say in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, the invisible God who cannot be seen, who made everything eternally exist, not only in the person of the Father, but in the person of the Son. And the announcement to, he, to the Hebrews is, these people who were persecuted and wondering whether they should retreat back into Judaism and renounce and ignore Jesus, he's saying this is no angel. Some were apparently telling these early Christian believers what many Christian cults believe, including the Jehovah Witness. The Jehovah Witness has that name because they witness to Jehovah. They believe and announce the Father and the Father alone. Who is the son? He is the first and the best of God's creation. He is some kind of super being. He is something like an angel. But he's certainly not God himself. That's not what Hebrews says. He is superior, first of all, to angels. Look a little further down in the same passage. He's going to make it clear. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, God says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, now this is huge. What you're going to read next is the father speaking to the son. God the father is now going to address God the son. The father is going to speak of Jesus. And here is what the father said of the son. Of the son, he says, your throne what are those next two words? Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. A few weeks ago, we studied the Trinity and all of our minds were stretched and some of our minds were blown. Here's conversation within the fellowship of the Trinity. The Father says to the Son, you are God. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Who is Jesus? He is God who loves what is right and hates what is wrong. He has been set aside, anointed, empowered, sent by God, Through the agency of the Holy Spirit in the way that no prophet ever was, in the way no angel ever could be, because he is God. There are, in three passages now, we've seen a declaration of the deity of Jesus. Now I want you to hear Jesus speak for himself. Because so far, all we've been listening to is people give witness about Jesus who knew him or lived in his lifetime. Now I want you to hear Jesus be so crystal clear that actually the only way you can deny that Jesus ever said this is claim, as some, a very small group of people do, that the gospel of John itself is not original. One of the world's foremost scholarly skeptics of Jesus admits that the gospel of John makes clear, undeniable claims that Jesus is God. And according to John, who was there with him, it's Jesus himself who's telling us that. Two two chapters, John chapter 8, John chapter 10. By the time we come here, the white-hot hatred of Jesus is real. The pressure is on. The machinery is in motion. In John chapter 11, very shortly thereafter, Jesus very famously is going to bring his friend Lazarus back from the dead, and that is going to be the final straw. There is going to be a plot to kill not only Jesus, but to kill Lazarus. Lazarus now has to die twice to remove himself as evidence of the absolute power of Jesus to command death and to give life. And all of these people are crowding around Jesus. They're daring him to claim what he has always told them. Because in their mind, he cannot possibly be God. If he claims to be God, that's blasphemy. And in the law of the Old Testament, that's a death sentence. So listen to Jesus and see if you can hear him back down. John chapter 8, verse 54. You ever get this stereotype that Jesus is kind of this mealy-mouthed man who wandered around saying some clever things and occasionally reminded people to love each other, and who knows what all that trouble was about? A Christian friend of mine, a university professor actually several years ago, started reading through the Gospels carefully and slowly, apparently for the first time in his life, and he was completely shocked by how clear Jesus is. He's incisive. He's provocative. 2,000 years later, people who don't believe the Bible and don't believe that the text of the Bible is what it historically has always been can deny the clarity of Jesus, but I want you to see the reaction of the people who actually saw him face to face. You say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham, 2,000 years ago, knew that I was coming and rejoiced at the idea. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? In other words, have you lost your mind? You've just barely entered into manhood according to our culture. You're not even 50. There's no gray in your beard. And you're going to tell us that you knew something about Abraham, that you saw Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. What's the significance? Abraham lived 2,000 years earlier. A few centuries later, Moses was sent into Egypt after God appeared to him. And Moses, in fear, in skepticism, in nervousness, said, Who shall I tell them sent me? And God said, You tell them, this is my name. Tell them, I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I simply absolutely am. That's God explaining his eternality, his absolute existence, his absolute being. Now, Jesus is using those very words. He is saying, I knew Abraham, and before Abraham was, I am. And he takes the same language that God used to explain himself to Moses, Over a thousand years earlier, and they understood undeniably that he was claiming to be God. I didn't put it in your notes, but the very next verse, they picked up stones to kill him. And he did it again two chapters later. John chapter 10. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you've never read this, it can't get any more clear than it's about to get. His opponents, men who openly deny him, defy him, and malign him, who have insinuated that the story of his birth is shady because they know who their dad is, Jesus does not. They've accused his mother of being unfaithful prior to marriage to his father. They're saying everything about you seems made up. You seem to be the kind of person who has a shady past, who seems to be out of his mind, who seems to be making claims about yourself, who cannot possibly be true. You're in our synagogues, opening the scriptures, explaining yourself and saying, I'm the one, because that's what he did in Luke chapter 4. He went to his hometown of Nazareth, opened up the prophet Isaiah, read a prophecy from 700 years earlier, and then said, today this is being fulfilled right in front of you. And they tried to throw him off a cliff in ancient Nazareth that you can visit today. Now they say, after all this controversy, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Here's the answer. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Is that clear enough? I've been telling you, you don't want to hear it. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Want to have a claim to deity? No mere prophet, no good teacher. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Read verse 30 with me. What's verse 30 say? I and the Father are one. And you know what they did in verse 31? They picked up rocks to murder him. And it wasn't petty. They weren't flying off the handle. They were trying to commit a judicial execution on the charge of blasphemy. All of this escapes our attention because it happened so long ago and so far away, and the customs are so different. They came to Jesus and dared him using a title that in Hebrew is Messiah, in Greek is Christ. It means anointed. The one who Hebrews chapter 1 says that God has anointed him better than his companions, more generously than his companions. In other words, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in the way that he had never come upon anybody else. They came to Jesus and said, we dare you. Tell us you're that person. Jesus said, I've been telling you and you don't want to hear it. Everything I do tells you who I am. The reason you don't want to hear it is because you don't belong to me. I'm not going to save you because you will not listen to me. There are some in this nation who will listen to me. I will be their shepherd. I will save them. In fact, my father who gave me those I'm going to save, he's going to save them. He's greater than anyone. And oh, by the way, he and I, we are one. And now you're back in the mystery of the Trinity, the eternal God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it was so clear to his original hearers who Jesus was that they tried to kill him. That's the first mistake. The second is quicker and actually less common. Mistake number two regarding Jesus, that he's not human. This actually came up reasonably early after the life of Christ. Some evidently were so moved by the power of his words and the reality of his miracles that they said, okay, we can't deny it. He must have been God, but we all know that God can't become a human being. So his physical body must have been an illusion. His reality as a human being was either like a ghost, or it was only for a time, or We know, this was the development of the thought, we know that the spirit alone is pure and that these bodies of ours are fallen and sinful and corrupt. So someone like Jesus must have been a pure and holy spirit. He could not have possibly had a body shot through with corruption, shot through with evil as we believe human bodies have. Now that sounds kind of heady, that might have dragged you back into classes you tried to forget way back when you were in high school or college. But that old idea called Gnosticism is shot through our culture. Sometimes people who claim to be Christians speak of the spirit world as the only thing that is real and the only thing that matters, the only thing that is pure, and everything in this earthly world as impossibly fallen and corrupted. That's not true. That's the point of the resurrection. Jesus someday is going to redeem everything human beings are and everything he made, including giving you a glorified resurrected body. These ideas matter. They are normally found in the new age. They are found and they underlie science fiction movies. Like Blade Runner, like The Matrix, like Minority Report. The people who were creating those fictional worlds had brought in some philosophical ideas that had plenty of room for spirits and plenty of room for gods, but no room for actual humanity. John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That eternal word, the word that was always with God, the the word that was God, John says he became flesh. He became a human being and he dwelt among us. This is a commercial fisherman telling you this. This is not a philosopher. This is not a high-minded science fiction writer. An ordinary man who smelled like the fish and the lake that Jesus called him from, tells you, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his first letter, he's going to go more deeply into this because he's going to address directly the idea that if Jesus was God, he could not possibly have been a man. Listen to him. John starts his first letter like this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. There's the humanity and the deity of Jesus side by side. I don't know if if I'm explaining John's point well enough. He says, we're talking to you about someone who was from the beginning. And even though he was eternal, he was from the beginning, we heard him, we saw him with our own eyes, we touched him with our own hands, and we did all that concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, not a life, because Jesus is no ordinary human being. Unlike you, his life had no beginning. He eternally is God. And John, the commercial fisherman, at the same time says, we knew him. We had breakfast with him. We watched him fish. He told us where to fish. We saw him fall to fall sleep from exhaustion. We watched him die on a Roman cross. All of that was things that happened to an actual human being, and we saw it. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Here's the point of John telling you this. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Listen, please, church, John, a commercial fisherman, an ordinary man who literally dropped the nets of the family business to follow Jesus is saying, I was there. I saw him. I leaned against him at the lower, at the last supper. I felt his breath on my face. I heard him speak to me. I ate with him. I saw him suffer. I saw him thirst. I saw him take a kid's sack lunch in his ordinary human hands, John 6, and look up to heaven and ask the blessing of his father on that. And from that kid's lunch, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children at one time. He was the life, and the reason we're telling you all this is we now have fellowship with him and with his father, and we want you to enjoy God the way we're enjoying him already. If you can come into the fellowship of the life of God with us, our joy will be complete. In other words, I will say with John, I agree with John, nothing would make me humanly happier on this earth that if some of you who are considering Jesus would finally surrender to Him and welcome Him as your Savior and have Him as your eternal life. There is no doubt. He is God and He is man. Here is the Gospel of final Scripture. When the fullness of time had come, Paul writes the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. There's his deity, the son of God, born of woman, born under the law. That's his humanity to redeem those who were under the law. That's his salvation offered to us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And this ancient writing. It refers, of course, to sons and daughters. God welcomes both men and women into his family. And because you are sons, in other words, because you are children of God, God has sent the spirit of his son, there's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The truth is that Jesus is God and man. And that verse I just read to you means that you are impossibly, undeservedly, perfectly loved by all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The eternal God who is life looked across history and saw you dead in sin. And loving you so much, the Father sent the Son. The Son who is God and has the power to save who presents himself as the good shepherd and reminds Israel that the good shepherd that David spoke of in very well-known Psalm 23, when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, that's Jesus. Jesus now comes and says, I'm the good shepherd. All these others around you, hirelings, imposters, liars, self-interested deceivers, I have come to face death for you. No one is going to take my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. I'm doing this for you. As the God, he has the authority to save as a human being. He has the absolute empathy and closeness because he doesn't just understand humanity. He had, he took on humanity, and he did all of this for love. He did all of this to magnify his greatness so that his glory would be known by people he made who wanted nothing to do with him, who chose, according to the prophet Isaiah, our own way. And in doing so, we became lost like sheep, each choosing our own deadly way. And the good shepherd has come after all of us. The Son of God has come to fulfill the law in your place. Since you wouldn't do it, He did it for you. And now he welcomes you into the, fa- into the family of God so that you may know you are his daughter, you are his son. And in fact, the spirit rushes into your heart and tells you that you have a new relationship with the God who made you. Because you have trusted his son, you are now in the family of God and you speak to the king, not only as a subject, but as his beloved child. No one dares enter the throne room except the king's kids. Only the king's children go there with absolute confidence. Everyone else has to ask permission. Everyone else needs to make an appointment. But you are beloved, not only a child of God, but an heir through God. That's how much you're loved. And next week, we're going to be as practical as I know how to be to show you just how much that matters, just how much you're understood, just how dearly you are loved, just how wonderfully and beautifully and completely you are saved. Let's pray, shall we? Hey, can I just ask you before I pray, do you know this, God? It'd be a crying shame to spend 40 minutes talking theology, telling you who God is, how clear Jesus was, that it literally got him killed. He was so clear that men were obligated in their unbelief to kill him, though he wanted to die, and that he did that all for you, for you to hear all that and not be quite certain that Jesus is your Savior. That's what counts. All this knowledge, it only puffs up. It will only condemn you if you know more, but believe no more if you hear about God, but you do not trust and love God, if you don't know this Savior, let me invite you right now to turn away from your sin, turn away from yourself, and ask Jesus, the God who became a man to save you. Tell him that you accept his obedience in your place. Tell him that you're grateful he faced your temptations for you, and he can give you eternal life and ask him to do it. And Christian, Every day, every week, at least, at least every week, I get emails, text messages, phone calls, bits of conversations where people wonder, they wonder if God can actually love the likes of them. Knowing who they are, knowing what they've done, can God actually love me? Does He really love me that much? The answer, eternally, in His Son is yes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God loves you. It's not that Jesus loves you and the Father is mildly annoyed with you. No, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of God, the fullness of God, the totality of the God who is, He loves you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being yourself. Thank you for being God. Thank you for becoming a man. Thank you for coming in obedience to the Father, sent by the Father to live in our place thank you for sending yourself with the Father, the Holy Spirit, that we may have life and that we may understand concepts as deep as these. Whatever else, Lord, is understood or even forgotten. We know that you are God, Savior, Lord, the Son of Man and the Son of God, and that you love us this completely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All week long, the God who has always been there, if you are in Christ, will be loving you. He can do nothing less. You're in his family. He calls you his beloved son, his beloved daughter. He sent his Holy Spirit as a, gra- as a deposit and a guarantee that someday he's going to save you utterly and completely. I know the pandemic's torn families apart. It's ripped a lot of churches apart. Ours has been so blessed, so unified, and I am so grateful to you. But I know it's cost all of us something, and it's cost some of you a great deal. Whatever your family, whatever your church, this church, former church, former friends, neighbors, whatever else they say of you, However else they treat you, whatever else they've done against you, remember how much the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love you. Jesus always was God. He became a human being for one single reason, to glorify God, to glorify Himself by bringing you into His family and giving you His identity, His forgiveness, His riches. You're so loved Who cares who else loves you? I mean, it matters a great deal. But if everyone else were ever to betray you, the God who made everything, he loves you. So go with grace. Be encouraged. And when it gets discouraging, just remember the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because God is good, loves you. God bless you. I love you too.